Now, the problem with interviewing David Ogilvy is, is that the fact he's dead. Uncovering the most amazing stories from the most talented innovators and creatives in marketing tech and digital, this is the Wonderful People Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wonderful People Podcast with Dan Mordab and Phil Jones, Dan's sidekick. Uh, and Phil uh, Joseph Jones, <laughs> uh, we, we found out recently. Oh yeah, no, we can leave that. Uh, jo- maybe Joey. <laughs> Joey, here we go. We've got a new name now. We've got Joey. <laughs> Every episode we're coming up with a new name now. I like it. Oh no. So tell us about your week, Phil. What's been happening? Um, well, it's been quite a, a good week up until waking up at seven o'clock this morning, hoping to get the result of the election in America and finding out that uh, even now, 10 hours later, <clears throat> they still don't know who's winning it. I think it's just unbelievable. Now, I don't know, maybe when we're chatting to our guest later, we'll ask him about the election, but um, the fact that Donald Trump is already talking about going to court to because he doesn't agree with the result and we don't even know the result, it's all a little bit... I, I was thinking so, that. So if he does win, is he going to take himself to court? Uh, he, no, he won't, because <laughs> uh, if, if he wins, it's not cheating. Yeah, exactly. Loses, it's cheating. I know. It's... It just seems like it's like watching a Netflix programme, isn't it, that just yep. goes on and on and on, and you keep thinking it can't get any more far-fetched. Yeah. And it always does. So hopefully by the end of today or sometime tomorrow, we'll have a better idea. But uh, I want to start going to America on holidays again. A, it's like a storyline from Brookside or EastEnders on steroids, isn't it? It, it just it, gets more and more dramatic and more and more far-fetched. And you think, where's the reality of what politics should be about, which is about helping people, right? Let's move on before we get onto our political bandwagon. We've got a great guest today, Phil. So who have we got? Well, today we're going to speak into the charismatic Mr. Gordon Young to get the inside scoop on how a small Scottish trade publication was built into one of the world's biggest marketing platforms. As the Drums co-founder and editor-in-chief, Gordon is perfectly placed, sitting right at the helm of what's happening globally in the world of marketing right now, to give us the lowdown on what's changing, what's not, and how brands, agencies, and the drum themselves are adapting to it all. So Gordon Young, welcome. Thank you very much for an introduction. <laughs> there we go. We'll just end the episode there. Yeah. <laughs> You're on a high there, Gordon. <laughs> yeah, I'm going right. to play that back to the kids. Yeah. <laughs> to the kids. You need to expect me more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Listen to your dad. This is who he yeah. is. <laughs> so, Gordon, we always start these, uh, these, these chats together with a very deep and philosophical question. But if you were to be stuck in a lift with someone, who would it be and why? Uh, it's, a good, it's a really good question. Uh, and I would probably say something like Elon Musk uh, for a, a few reasons. Uh, and not least of all, he's a really good engineer, could probably fix a lift. Uh, <laughs> good point. But also, he's just, uh, you know, I find him inspirational in terms of his risk taking and his, his ability to create stunts. He's obviously got a sense of humor. I think he could laugh. Uh, maybe he could, uh, you know, share something interesting to smoke. I don't know. As well as give, uh, you know, good insights into really how you can. Uh, you know, build a global brand. The other, the other uh, candidate, actually, at the moment, though, would be maybe Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> I, would, I would love to uh, meet Donald Trump, uh, almost so I could say I've met him. I think that'd be good. But also to understand this 
how this person who's on one hand seems like a bombastic toddler uh, became the most powerful man in the world. Uh, and I think there's a tendency to underestimate Donald Trump. I think that's a mistake a lot of his, uh, his opponents make. They underestimate really how good he is at communicating and getting across a message to uh, the exactly right demographic. So, uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't, uh, I think there's a tendency to oversimplify uh, you know the you know the issues in American politics. I think Donald Trump's probably better than we realise. But I actually have evidence of that uh, because remember, uh, as, and I think Phil, you're involved in this as well. We did a you know we did a sort of personality profile of all the readers of the drum and all of the pod attendees one year. Oh yes, and we took, yeah. And we took these personalities and put them in little Trump cards. So we rated people in terms of their intelligence, empathy. You know, four or five different criterias based on how they use language in Twitter. And for a bit of a laugh, we also analysed Donald Trump. And it was actually his personality was really surprising. Uh, you know, he's definitely uh, the most intelligent person we analysed. And obviously, interestingly, one of the most empathetic. So he's obviously somebody who can read other people. Uh, so I think he's interesting. I'd love to sort of get to the bottom of, of him and be able to sort of draw my own conclusions of what he's really like. Very interesting. <laughs> how, how about this for a suggestion? Donald Trump and Elon Musk, the lift together. I think that'd be a... a, a <laughs> I think if the lift was broken already, or wasn't broken already, it would definitely bust it up. <laughs> Brilliant. Good on. It'd be off into space for the Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> so moving from uh, the USA to Glasgow... And you and your schoolmate, Nick Creed, founded the drum back in the 1980s. Um, can you tell us how you went from flogging a magazine in the school playground to where you are today? And at what point did Diane step in as your third business partner? Or was she also a schoolmate? <laughs> wow, that's a big question. <laughs> how, how long do we have? Uh, this is the main story. How did you get yeah. where you got? Because basically, uh, when I was leaving school uh, in about 1984, I wanted to be a journalist. And, and this was uh, while the industry was still very unionised. And and uh, there was this thing where I didn't actually think I would get in uh, because it was so difficult to get a job in journalism at that point. And also, I couldn't be bothered staying at school. I wasn't enjoying school. I wanted to leave school with basically uh, not very many qualifications. I wanted to be a journalist. And that probably, there was no route into the profession for me. So to get around that, I decided to uh, basically start my own business. And this is partly inspired by the fact we were already already running the school magazine. Uh, so me and Nick Creed, uh, who I founded the business with, we were at school together and we're running uh, the school magazine, which was really, really profitable. We started it. It was unofficial. We ran it ourselves. Uh, we sold advertising to local shops. We got the, cow, the you know, it used to be, this is obviously for computers, uh, so we're using, uh, stuck to thing together using uh, cow gum, photocopied it, sold on the playground. And it remains the most profitable thing I ever did in terms of margins. <laughs> we're making about 50, 60% margin on it. Fantastic. And we thought, this is really easy. This sort of sense of uh, being able to have the freedom to do your own thing, uh, you know, uh, sell advertising, get the product and sell it. It was really exciting, the sort of independence and freedom it gave you. And the teachers hated us. We exposed some scandals. So we had this sort of mini taste of being a sort of small press baron. We had a bit of uh, power and kudos. <laughs> uh, and uh, that, that inspired us to say, well, why don't we just leave school? And rather than bother going through the conventional channels, why don't we just start our own business from scratch and be independent? Uh, and so that's what me and Nick decided to do. We, we left school and started our own business. My mum and dad were journalists, so they did help a lot, has to be said. 
And when we announced we're leaving school, they sort of did like a reverse family business. So they helped us out. Uh, they've got some in-house magazines to do and things. Uh, but we basically started the company doing a magazine for our little town of Lindsay outside Glasgow, which was Lindsay Life. Uh, and me and Nick used to produce the magazine for the town, sell advertising again, then go door to door selling it uh, to the residents of Lindsay. And then we got enough money uh, to go to the pub. Uh, so we maybe did about you know two streets, got five quid profit, went spent it in the gallery in Lindsay. And uh, five quid, five quid was enough to get pissed on. <laughs> and get a kebab and go home and still have changed. It was one of those things. And that's basically, and then Lens of Life, uh, we've got ambitious. Lens of Life became the Glaswegian. Uh, while we're running this business, we there was another little magazine up in Scotland called Presentation, which was very similar to The Drum. It's a marketing magazine. It went bust. And we then took over that business, really. We, we took over their offices, their mailing list, and their advertising salesman. And that was really the start of the journey into, into the drum. Uh, so me, me and Nick were running this business, uh, has to be said, uh, chaotically. Uh, you know, we, we often joke that the only reason we kept going is we, we didn't, we never looked at the figures. Uh, we didn't know how bad it was, uh, but we're still getting our money to go to the pubs, so we're happy. And then uh, Diane joined and, uh, you know, so we started it and then Diane joined and she sort of saved it. Uh, and then started to you know professionalising it, you know putting you know more professional business systems and doing our accounts properly, and that was really allowed us to then sort of sort of start growing to something bigger. Wow. Dan was good at maths, wasn't she? Yeah, well, Dan, uh, you know, it's, me and Dan are a likely team, so I'm a, obviously come from a journalistic background. Dan is a mathematician. Uh, I met her just after she uh, had finished her maths finals. Uh, she's very stressed out. But she got her, you know, she, she got her degree in pure mathematics from Southside. Wow. Then she joined the NHS, running the mental health side of the business. We were by that point running uh, our trade magazine, but she started borrowing a lot of our techniques in terms of understanding the mental health services. So we used to rate ad agencies and you know various dynamics like uh, profit, client service, uh, peer perception, uh, creativity, things like that. And so Dan started rating uh, mental hospitals using a similar multi-criteria sort of system, which is borrowed from uh, borrowed from us. Uh, and I, I actually found her mental health background was extremely useful uh, when she joined the drum. She could keep you boys in check. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's, I mean, it's incredible to hear that from, you know, you know, in the industry globally, you know, the drum, the drum is to go to not only publication, but online resource. Now, Obviously, this month is quite an interesting time for you guys because the drums changed its manifesto to the drum problem solved. So can you tell us a little bit more about the, the decision behind this? And yeah, what would the, is, is there anything new to expect? What can we expect around that? Because it seems like you're at another stage of evolution. Well, we, we uh, it's funny, we are constantly evolving. Uh, and we've evolved really from the beginning because we started off in the era of, uh, you know, hot metal. I mean, I reported in the last hot metal newspaper to close in Scotland. People were literally still sitting with molten buckets of lead at their feet when I started. Uh, and then we've obviously, we've seen the rise of the computer age. I remember getting our first computer. Uh, and then we went to straight to play production, which is, you know, you know print, you know, has uh, got very advanced as well. So we, we still print in Wales. So the magazine is edited in London. It's uh, the production's in Scotland and, and the actual print is done in Wales. 
So we've always been very interested. We've always had to change the technology. And obviously the, the massive difference has been the move towards a full digital communications and the rise of the internet and the big story there. Uh, and that's, that allowed us to move from a traditional publishing business to become a, to scale globally. It became possible to become a, a, a small global business for the first time uh, because you could write a story in Scotland, you could distribute it all over the world. You didn't have the, the cost of the logistics you used to have to you know, manage. Uh, so that leveled the playing field and that allowed the drum, the Scottish company, to suddenly compete with the best in the world based on the quality of our content. So suddenly we beat our rivals in the UK and we're able to compete with our main competitors in the US as well, just down to the quality of the content. But I think our, uh, our experience of working coming from a tiny market like Scotland has shaped our whole philosophy. Because even when we started in Scotland, you know, 30 years ago, uh, the market was so small, no one silo could sustain its own publication. So, for instance, in London, you had campaign, which was for advertising. You had PR, PR week, which was for public relations. You had print week, which was for print, surprisingly. Uh, you had different publications for every silo. But in Scotland, we covered everything because no one silo could support its own publication. So we covered print, we covered broadcast, we covered advertising, we covered marketing, creativity, design, everything. But because of the way the... The digital side has evolved. That's the way the market evolved as well. So we were we were almost like ahead of the game in terms of our editorial position because we were always covered the industry as a whole. And that allowed us to, if you like, leapfrog. And when the sort of digital transformation came along, our editorial positioning was exactly right to run a digital platform. Uh, but what we're seeing now is another great change. So uh, so the industry is, uh, is not as siloed as it was. It's much more... Uh, there's a lot of convergence across all the different disciplines. So we're perfectly placed to reflect that. But the big change we're seeing now is the democratization of news, if you like. So uh, years ago, we used to be the gatekeeper for news. So you'd come to channels like the John Mark campaign, campaign for news. But now people tend to go to other platforms such as LinkedIn or social media, and they're getting their news from all sorts of other areas. So we no longer have a not over news. But where we can make a difference is in terms of news analysis. And actually say, well, we appreciate our readers. They know, the, they know it's happening, but they might not necessarily understand why it's happening. So we've decided to change positioning and actually do a lot more analysis of the news and really trying to understand, you know, what, what's driving the current affairs. And the other thing we want to really understand is what is the major challenges our readers are facing uh, and to try and then solve these problems for them. So we want to sort of take all this together on an analysis and say, right, we want to use that to start solving problems for our readers. That's interesting, yeah. That's really interesting. I think, you know, obviously you've, you've talked about the evolution quite a lot of, 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 you know, the drama in your journey, but, you know, the post, there's no such thing as post-pandemic right now, but as we're coming through the pandemic, you know, agency life, marketing, technology seems to be shifting at such a pace. I mean, what do you, how do you see things evolving? How do you see the industry evolving as we come through this? Yeah, and the industry has always been moving and shifting. Uh, we have this sort of uh, a sense everything standing still. It's almost been like being in a boat. I like sailing. Uh, and if you're at sea in a boat, you go below, you get this, you get this feeling of safety and everything's the same. But outside, you've got the current, you've got the, the winds, uh, you've got all these different variables and things and shifting, changing all the time. 
Uh, and it's our job to sort of just try and monitor uh, what forces are at play at any given point of time and try and work out what is the optimum uh, way to set our sails to navigate that. Uh, so the world has, so ever since I've been in the business, it's been constantly changing and we've been constantly changing with it. Uh, I think what we're going through at the moment is a, is a very intense squall where a lot of things are, a lot of trends which were evident before the pandemic pandemic are now accelerating and they're certainly a lot more pronounced. But I don't think there's any surprises uh, about the way we're heading. I don't think there's any surprises that we're moving much more to digital economy, that we're moving to cashless economy, uh, that we're moving to sort of contactless service and shops. All these trends existed before the pandemic. So, and uh, you know, so I don't think there's any surprises, but I think the only issue is speed of change. Yeah. What about Gordon just running a global business in a pandemic? Now, I, I know you've got offices in New York, Singapore, Scotland, and London. Are, are there any I've missed? I know that, uh, did you say Glasgow? Uh, Scotland. <laughs> no, you didn't. I, I call it Scotland. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's Glasgow. Scotland, then, I'll do, yeah. <laughs> um, so, that, so, obviously, lots of things have changed over the last six, seven months. But, you know, how, how are you dealing with that as a business? Yeah. If, if I was to be really honest uh, with you, uh, we were not quite as uh, digital as we thought we were. Uh, so when we sort of started the pandemic uh, and, you know, we were definitely running a lot of very traditional elements for business and live events was a really good example of this. So a lot of our business still revolved around physical live events. Uh, so for instance, in Cannes and in advertising, we, we ran pubs. You know, we took a pub venue and then we sort of, uh, uh, you know, got that sponsored and we ran events in our pubs, live events in these pubs. We did 10, 22 live, event, live award schemes within conferences. And actually, when you think about it, they, they, that's very analogue. So the, the pandemic's actually forced us to actually have a, have a look at this and, and really admit, actually, we were not really leveraging our digital footprint as, as, as well as we should have been. Now, the opportunity we had is because we have a big website in the form of the drum, which is probably... Uh, you know, it could be the third largest in the world, you know, as a marketing platform. We had this enormous opportunity to really leverage that. Uh, and what we did very quickly uh, in March, I think, when the lockdown was first announced, we were due to be at, at Advertising Week uh, Europe in London. We had a pub and we had a lot of customers who'd bought into our pub. Uh, and we very quickly sort of changed strategy and over the course of a week, we set up the Digital Transformation Festival. And the idea was that people we'd done deals with who were going to come along to this physical event, we said to them, why do you come along and take part on our online festival, which is the Digital Transformation Festival, which is going to help people cope with the challenges of digital transformation, which inevitably they're going to face over the next few months. Uh, and that was actually really successful. Uh, and we, we, we literally set up, a, we, we actually set up a TV studio in three days our very first client in the TV studio was the BBC. Uh, it was the first, literally, the, the first people in the studio was the BBC. We had their senior presenters in there. We had to get the makeup people. Uh, you know, the very demanding professional audience, and we pulled off all of them three days. Wow. Uh, so, so the, the two lessons for me was one: we weren't actually as digital as I claimed we were, because actually a lot of our business was still rooted in physical events. 
But the second thing was a lot of the skills in the business were actually quite transferable. Uh, so the you know the people who are doing awards, we can move them over to running digital events because actually they're it's actually quite they're, they're similar the similar sort of skill set. So we had the skills in the business, we just weren't sort of uh, deploying them was probably in the best way. Brilliant. Now, now your next question is: Will we go back to doing what we were doing before the pandemic? The answer is no. I think uh, we have uh, decided that we are going to be putting a lot more emphasis on the digital events. So things like the awards, for example we probably will not go back to doing 20 different award shows. We're actually driving a lot more entries at the moment. And we're also being able to operate a lot more globally than we were because we're not so rooted. Because we found that if you do a live event in a certain location, you become rooted to that geography. So maybe people in you know, Asia say, actually, why, why am I entering an event in New, New York? It's not as relevant. Or if someone's in New York, why am I entering an event in London? But suddenly say, look, it's just the... The, the drum awards for the digital industries. Uh, we want to find the best examples of digital in the world. And we're not rooted to one place for the ceremony. It's opened up. So we're actually driving a lot more global entries because of it. I can speak about that one uh, through experience because it was last week or, or the week before, wasn't it? I was chairing right, yeah. the daddies. Yeah. And I found it fascinating. And actually, Dan was one of the judges. I don't know if you know that. I didn't know that. Thanks a lot, Dan. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me. It was great. But what was really interesting was, um, as you say, there were judges all around the world. And we had one guy, it was three in the morning, and he was in a hotel in Mexico. Uh, no, so it was, no, not three in the morning. He was there, he, he kept turning the camera around to show us the swimming pool outside where <laughs> he was his judging. We had uh, Barry Brand was actually in the airport lounge at Gatwick on his way to Bulgaria. We had people logging in from India, from Miami, the guy from Procter & Gamble. I and mean, they're all just coming in to these little groups, meeting people that they they didn't know previously. And from your perspective, Dan, in a little group of four, it, there was an immediate bond there, wasn't there, with these people coming from different directions? Yeah, I think, I think you know, for me, it was like a really good litmus test of where the industry's at. You know, we're coming from all brands, um, agencies, globally, as Phil said. But actually, because we're now so used to communicating like we are now, and we're so used to sort of diving into meetings, you know, deep diving into sort of, you know, some quite clear thinking, the process that you put in place beforehand also was great. But I think, you know, you could, it's much easier to collaborate and build synergy now online. Whereas I think possibly, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, we were so used to face-to-face and you, you have to have the... The, the, the cup of tea and the small talk and the chat beforehand to get to know people. But it feels like as a, as a, as a sort of industry, we're much, you know, we're much more ready to collaborate and communicate quick, quicker and simpler. And the, the yep. awards are brilliant. I mean, we, you know, we got, we deep dived into the entries really, really quickly. The synergy in the room was great. And, and, and the entries were global. So as a testament to what you're saying, I mean, I was blown away by some of the entries from different countries. And, and what it did, in my opinion, is it created a, a variety that you might not see if you're just seeing work from the UK or from a you know, particular area of the UK or a particular type of the industry. You generally see similar things or nuances of similar things, whereas it was so diverse. And I think the uh, Chairman's Award, the, the, the Grand Prix, was so diverse, the entries, that were phenomenal. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think it worked really well. I really do. I think it's a testament to what you guys have done in terms yeah, of 
the hard work and the process. The process was really good. Laura was brilliant. You know, it was just a yeah, fantastic process, really. Probably do it with a lot less staff as well. Yeah, but well, interesting thing is about I'm finding that it's a lot easier. And I think the question you asked was, you know, you've got uh, offices all over the world. You know, how do you run that in a, in a pandemic? And the, and the answer is that it's probably a lot more straightforward than it was uh, because we're forced to use tools like Zoom and also things like the judges. It's a lot easier for us to engage judges from all over the world as well. Under the old model, we'd have had to try and fly them all in or get them all to turn up personally, and that's a lot harder. So suddenly, people are getting used to the idea of actually taking part virtually. Are you enjoying our podcast? Remember to subscribe, share, and leave us a review. Yeah, absolutely. Gordon, a couple of, couple of other things you guys have been up to. Um, what's happening at the drum labs and the corner shop space that you've recently taken over? What can we sort of expect to see there? Well, maybe this is uh, bad timing, but just before lockdown, uh, the first lockdown, we took over a, a three-story building in Shoreditch, uh, which we're going to, which we're in the process of turning into this event space. Uh, and the idea is we want to, to really showcase what mar- the marketing of the future, really, if we want to celebrate the future of marketing. So on the ground floor, we are working with a, a company called Sharpend, which is an amazing company. I think they've done a lot of work for you, Phil. Yeah, they did the most recent uh, digital podge. That's right. They were great. Uh, but Cam, the team is sharp and a fantastic company. So they have taken the, the, the shop unit on the ground floor and we're also working with Cap Gemini, who have put hundreds of thousands of pounds of technology into the store. And the idea is it's going to be a retail unit of the future. When it opens in uh, early January, it'll probably be the first post pandemic retail unit open London uh, so the idea is so inside we're going to have things like uh, we're going to design an app for it so when you turn up the shop the shop will recognize you we're going to have virtual shelving inside the shop so when you turn up the shop the, sh- the stock will change to match your preferences <laughs> so if you're a vegan for example you'll just sort of see vegan foods and uh, there's going to be an automated coffee machine so the, co- the shop will recognize who you are and and automatically pour your your ideal cup of coffee. Uh, we're going wow. to have a vert- we're going to have a vertical farm in there, so we're going to be growing sort of vegetables and stuff. We've got a virtual changing room, so you can sort of uh, you know try on clothes virtually. You know you can you can actually pick up what you're interested in. But when you turn around and look at this virtual mirror, you'll be wearing the garment, so you can be able to feel the quality of it and then see what you look like wearing it. Uh, and then we're going to have all sorts of AR experiences. Upstairs, we're going to have a pub of the future. I'm not quite sure uh, exactly what that'll entail, but I think I guarantee it'll be old-fashioned alcohol served. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then we've got a a, a TV studio going in. We've got an event space. Uh, But one of the things we want to do is, if you like, sort of bring the virtual and the physical world together. So we still think, although we're going to be living in a digital economy, these physical touch points are still going to be very much part part of it. So we want to create this physical space to to give people an insight into how digital is going to change, how consumers are going to interact uh, in retail or in you know and enjoying these experiences. So it's probably the, the biggest thing we've ever done in terms of investment. Uh, and on one hand, we it might it might seem a bit reckless doing this in uh, as lockdown approaches. But the more we thought about it, we thought maybe the timing's exactly right because, uh, again, the trends 
in terms of all this cashless and 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 new and new new ideas behind retail, a lot of these trends are really accelerating. So I think now people really want to find out how that might actually look in practice. Absolutely, and you you guys can be at the forefront of that as well. Brilliant. Uh, Hopefully, yeah, and obviously drive a lot of content for us. So uh, you know, you know, because we can sort of create these stories in the in this physical space, but then it gives the website something to talk about. So we can interview people and how the you know. Uh, fashion is going to work in the future, or, or how this whole the issue of sustainability, you know, and how we're growing our own food within the store. So you might have you might have answered already the next question because what you guys are up to is so cutting edge what, what, from what you've just described. But looking at your role as editor in chief, we've looked at the drum quite a bit and what the brand is doing. But in terms of your role, you're you're, you're always seeing things at the forefront of change, right? You're always seeing and hearing what's happening. Um, anything that's currently sparked your interest? What's hot? What's not? Um, I, I don't think actually uh, what's hot. I, I think it's interesting the 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 scale of change at the moment. I think everyone's fascinated in that. I'm really interested in the, the end of cash. You know, they're they're thinking that within you know I saw a, a stat. I think it's three or four years there'll be no cash machines left. Uh, I don't think anyone expected cash to disappear so quickly. We might also be living through either the end of the credit card as people send transfer a lot more of the financial information onto phones. And I, you know, I see wonderful stuff around digital out of home, you know, how people are, are advertising through apps, how, how they're sort of connecting, using the mobile experience to connect to the physical experience with digital, digital display. It's actually, to be honest with you, I think this is a really exciting time to be in the industry. You know, there's, a, there's always a lot of threat, but there's a huge amount of opportunity. And I, I, and I think when we, the dust settles and we look back in this era, we probably feel very lucky to have lived through it because I think this is really a, a defining moment. And we're fortunate because this, the trends have been accelerated. We can still benefit from this sort of these new ideas, new technology within our careers. I think if it hadn't been in the pandemic, we would have been sort of old and grey and fed up with it before these things started kicking in. Mm-hmm. That's a really great perspective. And it's also nice to see, Gordon, that you don't think Phil is old and grey yet. I don't, <laughs> I, I, I don't think he is either, but it's glad you validated that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not, not at all. Honestly, Phil could run for president of the United States soon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's getting there, isn't he? Now. He'll still be young enough to do it. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I could normally look, I'd look better in digital format than in real format, but I've got, you've probably seen these blotches. Yeah. yeah and I'm putting some cream on that is makes you go blotchy. So I'm doing it during lockdown is absolutely perfect. I'm enjoying yeah. that. Um, it was a really big decision you made because you and your CEO, Diane, who also happens to be your wife, and three kids, that decision to actually up sticks, move from Scotland, move to London, you know, that's that's quite brave. And a lot of people would have maybe copped out and done, a, like, done it during the week and went home at weekends or, but you really went for it. Just tell us about that decision and how it's worked out for... Yeah, well, I wish it. First of all, I wish I'd done it years ago. Uh, I mean, moving to London was the best thing I ever did. I mean, I you know I love the city. I love living here. Uh, I love the inspiration. Uh, it doesn't feel particularly English city. It feels very international. Uh, I, you know, and, and plus I just love it. And uh, I'll probably be lunch next time I go to Glasgow for admitting that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say you got to be careful how much you say you love London. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I. Uh, but me and, me and Dad had been thinking about it for ten years, and it's difficult because of the because of the kids. It's complicated moving. 
because you had all these variables like schools and you know and, and the first time you wanted to replicate uh, our lifestyle in Scotland and London which we couldn't really afford to do unless we moved to you know uh, Kent or something or some, or uh, we looked at Black Notley and Essex all these places but the problem with that is uh, it wouldn't actually save us a lot of time you know we could actually travel uh, from Glasgow to London as quickly as you can travel from Black Notley and Essex we were looking at to London so after a lot of deliberation, we decided to stuff it. What we'll do is we'll just buy a company flat in London. It's a lot more straightforward. So me and Diane, uh, as investment, decided to buy a flat. And the only issue was it needed to be convenient to, to for an airport, a city airport, and easy to get to Shoreditch where the office was based. So we bought this place in Settler's Court in Can- near Canning Town. Uh, I, I didn't even go and see it before we bought it. I think I looked at it, went in it one night. It was a repossession, dark, looked okay, go for it. Uh, and then, we, and then we, the idea was we rented to the company. So me and Dan went down with the kids in summer to sort of do it up. Uh, and then we had one of these sort of fantasies. And when you go on holiday, you have a fantasy about what would it actually like just to live here? <laughs> mm-hmm. so, so we're down there with the three kids and we're doing it up. And actually, flat in summer looked quite nice. We had a pantry growing outside and uh, the weather was amazing. And, and so we, we said, we phoned uh, Tower Hamlet's council and we said, we just moved to London, all three kids are out of education. And we organised tours of schools, but it was still a bit of a sort of a fantasy. So we took the kids to see all these little primary schools. The kids didn't catch on what was going on. They just thought this is what you did in the holiday, go and see a school. <laughs> and the first thing that struck me was how, how diverse the schools were. I mean, uh, you know, some schools we looked at were literally 99% English second language. But we got this, we come across a school which was 75% English, the second language, uh, but it was great. So it was a beautiful school, great head teacher, loved it, but the chances are we weren't going to get into it. There's such a big wait list. Teachers said, look, you, I don't even get you in here. We can maybe get one kid in this school, another kid not. So we thought this is not going to happen. We moved back to, it all ended, back to uh, Scotland. And then we got a call from uh, Tower Hamlet's Council saying, right, we've got you in to this school. Uh, unexpectedly, wow. uh, three places, uh, but you have to start on Monday. Uh, now this is like a Tuesday or Wednesday. It was all, well, can't we maybe wait till weekend Monday? So no, if you you've got to go on Monday. Your kids are in education. If you don't start, you lose places. Uh, and and we hadn't told anybody about this. Wow. We hadn't uh, thought about really moving seriously. Hadn't spoken to our families. No one knew about it. So we said to the kids, uh, kids. Uh, we're moving to London on Saturday. <laughs> wow. Uh, and they literally had three days notice and we told the school, right, we're moving. We told my mum and dad, and I was right, we're moving down. And we literally, one, one suitcase each, because the flat we'd had was a Barrett flat. We lived in a four-bedroom cottage in Scotland. And we're moving into a sort of three-bedroom Barrett flat. Uh, so the kids could take one suitcase each. Uh, and that was basically it. We shut, we shut up the house in Scotland, uh, loaded the car, Drove down and never went back. Mm. Alone, we went back to sell a house and threw all our stuff out. Uh, just wow. before, just before lockdown, you and Diane invited Babs and I to come over and have dinner with you. And uh, Diane said to bring you bring me swimming trunks. And I thought she was taking the Mickey, but I, you've got a swimming pool now. We've got a swimming pool. Yeah, well, the we were living in a place because I used to edit an architecture magazine. Uh, we were editing a. Uh, I used to have an architectural magazine, so I was into building design and space. And I, I used to write a lot about placemaking. So it's a dream of architects that 
you know, a place is not made up of buildings. It's it's actually it's, it's a sum total of buildings and how you actually create a place through the individual buildings. Uh, and we have since moved into new development in kind of London City Island. Uh, and it actually represents a lot of the values to write about. So you've got, uh, you know, so, so what the developers actually built a place, they've actually managed to create a community uh, where they've got really good public spaces, they've got, uh, uh, they've got some cinema, they've got little uh, pool area and gyms. But the basic point is you meet a lot of people. So I've sort of made more friends uh, in the last few months than you know, probably the last 20 years of my life put together. And it's created this really, really good sense of community where you literally can't go to the side of the front door without bumping into somebody you know. Lovely. Uh, or if you take the dog for a walk, you bump into somebody, go for a pint. So I never thought I'd get this sort of village sense of community uh, near, near central London. That's brilliant. Oh, well, so it was a good decision. It was a great decision, yeah. Now, Dan, I was, I was going to ask the next question about the industry awards, but I think we've covered that. Yeah, yeah, great. I mean... I think I think obviously we're sitting here and you've, you're very uh, thankful you've given up your time for us and as we're interviewing you and, and giving you a bit of a grilling, it sounds like. But um, you've interviewed some of the biggest hitters in the world of design, digital advertising. Can you tell us about some of the, you know, the impressive or interesting characters that you've interviewed during during that period? And who are the people that are sort of you've remembered or not knocked your socks off? Well, one of the first people I ever interviewed was David Attenborough. Wow. And he he just produced his book uh, about uh, life on Earth, I think it was called, uh, and uh, had a great interview with him. Uh, but what struck me, and this was a few years ago, uh, but what struck me at the time was his off-screen persona is exactly the same as on-screen persona. So me speaking to David Attenborough privately was like almost speaking to him as he was presenting a TV show. It was really <laughs> odd. Uh, and I think that's sort of quality of them where I think what you see is really what you get. So what you see with David Attenborough on screen is exactly the same as a man in real life. Is why he's become a bit of a national treasure. Uh, but in terms of the industry, obviously, we've we've had some great fun interviewing, you know, likes of uh, Maurice Levy or the Martin Sorrells or uh, Prince Andrew, guest edited initially the job. I don't know if I can admit that now. Uh, <laughs> but that was before the various scandals. But I enjoyed going to Buckingham Palace. For meetings with them, really, <laughs> brilliant. Uh, you know, it's good fun. So I once had to because t- I once I went to visit him in Buckingham Palace, and uh, and I and there was a tube strike. So uh, and the only way to get down to the palace was by bike. So I cycled down on my bike, but it was absolutely <laughs> pissing with rain. So I had sort of full water group proofs on. I got to the front gate, and he actually had to go in the front gate with a tourist arm. You see, I'm here to see uh, Prince Andrew, and open the gate up, and he. And I said, what to do with my bike? And he said, oh, just, just go up to the palace, leave your bike against the outside wall. <laughs> so I went up, <laughs> went to Buckingham Palace, propped prop my bike up against the outside wall of Buckingham Palace, <laughs> went inside <laughs> with my dripping wet waterproofs and uh, there's a funky inside, oh, can I, uh, can I take your coat, sir? And I said, yes, but can you take my trousers too? <laughs> <laughs> what a great story. Brilliant. It was quite good fun. But I think the, the most interesting uh, project, the one I always look back on is actually, and we've touched on this slate already because it was part of the top Trumps thing, but the most interesting person who's ever edited our initial of the drum was not actually a person. It was uh, Watson, the AI uh, system from IBM. So we invited uh, the Watson computer to guess edit a whole issue. 
So the idea was this AI system would create this print magazine. And when it came out, it's literally the very first print magazine ever to be created using AI. We're actually in the AI Museum in Germany. We've got, a, we've got an exhibit there. Wow. <laughs> uh, and this system would do things uh, like uh, we wanted to interview David Ogilvy. Now, the problem with interviewing David Ogilvy is, is that the fact he's dead. So that's a bit of a challenge. So what, <laughs> what Watson did was he ingested, Watson ingested a lot of his um, uh, films and books and articles. Uh, and then you could ask Watson a question and he would reply as David Ogilvy. So we managed to re-interview him uh, and actually get into David Ogilvy. And a lot of the stuff David Ogilvy said was uh, really relevant to today. So we asked him things around uh, you know, gender equality, for example. Uh, he is he was very sort of uh, you know sensible, and the, and the stuff that he said would actually stand up today. Fifty percent wow. of stuff he said was gobbledygook. So it worked about fifty percent of the time. But it was a really I actually changed my view of David David Ogilvy. I think uh, you know I thought he was a bit of an old bit of an old. You know, from basically a guy from another era, basically talented at the time, but not relevant today. But I did, I rediscovered him actually. David Ogilvy is still relevant today. Wow, that's very. I wasn't expecting to give that answer. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Brilliant, great stories. Yeah. What about um, a piece of work or a campaign that, when you look at some of the work that's been done in recent years, is there anything that sort of stood out that you've really been impressed by? Yeah, there's, there's so much. I mean, at the moment, uh, my favourite ad uh, at the moment is uh, Burger King, who, uh, you know, did an ad that simply said, eat at McDonald's. Yeah. Uh, and the idea was hospitality is in such dire straits to look, eat out if you can. We don't care if it's, uh, you know, Subway or even McDonald's. Uh, this is time to buy a Whopper and not worry about us. Uh, and I thought that was genius. Really, really simple inspirational. I think Burger King are just a, an absolute brilliant brand when it comes to these sort of things. Yeah, I listened, I listened to the, uh, I heard the CMO of Burger King UK share at Madfest last year and she was sharing the journey of how they've creatively evolved as a brand and how their messaging's evolved and it's phenomenal. They've done so well. I think they're a real sort of leader now in the retail, you know, in F&B sector. They've done, they've done very, very well. Just a couple more questions as we come to land, Gordon. Obviously, one of the questions we're asking our guests in a kind of bit of a, you know, bit of a challenging period is, what's the last thing that you saw that you thought, wow, that's wonderful? Uh, apart from uh, Burger King, uh, I actually looked at, uh, this is probably an old uh, a slight, slightly older campaign, but I was doing a bit of research uh, on, uh, you know, great digital web campaigns. Uh, and I came across this one, uh, I think it was for Battersea's Dog Home, could be the Dog Trust one or other. But the basic idea was you turned up at Stratford uh, and, uh, you, know, you, you, you know, they were saying there was a campaign to adopt, do, adopt the dog. But the idea is you got a leaflet and it had a bit of NFC in it. And every time you walk past a digital billboard in Stratford Shopping Centre, this dog appeared. So this dog would follow individuals around Stratford. Uh, and uh, it was a brilliant campaign at the time, but I saw it again uh, just today, actually. Uh, and it was even better than I remembered it. I remember that campaign. It was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And final question, Gordon, has become to land now. As an agency, we're all about making complex problems wonderfully simple. And what's one of life's complex problems you'd like to see made simpler? Uh, laundry. 
<laughs> Good answer. That's the thing about living in a, a small flat uh, with three kids and two girls. I mean, girls uh, uh, change their clothes five times a day. <laughs> uh, and you've got this beautifully, quite nicely designed flat, but there's no design to actually manage laundry, how to dry clothes. And I find I'm always tripping over uh, clothes horses. There we go. There we go. That's, I think there's a lot of people who agree with you on that. Yeah, the legend that is Gordon Young. So how many years <laughs> have you been in London now? Uh, actually, I've been here about uh, six or I think seven years. Seven. It's funny, my daughter was saying to her now, she's lived in London longer than she lived in Scotland. Uh, and she's 14, so she just had that landmark the other day. So, so she's kind of still referring to myself as Scottish. Or am I now English? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I know the answer to that. <laughs> and what, what accents have your kids got? Are they Scottish accents? Are they sort of blended a bit? Well, when they, when they came down every day, I took them to school, and every day I gave them the sort of Auchentoshan test. Uh, and they had to repeat Auchentoshan 10 times uh, to make sure that they, they could still do the Och, which, which qualifies as having a Scottish accent. <laughs> uh, and, and I think I think two of them can still say Ockentoshin. Uh the third one says Ockentoshin. <laughs> <laughs> she might be losing them a little bit. Uh, yeah, I think I think they've still got a bit of Scottish burr. There we uh, go. They're, they're, they're a lot easier to understand than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on what you've achieved with the drum. Thank uh, you very much. You've just been you're really nice people to deal with as well. There's nothing so much trouble. You've been involved with the Podge lunches across all of them, design, the Manchester one, and whoever we deal with within the drum team, they're always the same sort of person. They just can't do enough to help. They're amazing. Gordon, thanks so much for spending time with us and hear a bit about your story and also where the future of the drum's going. What a fantastic thing you've created. And, yeah, we look forward to the next evolution. Thank you very much. It's lovely to pleasure. Be here, guys. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in to the Wonderful People podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Wonderful Creative Agency. Find out more at thewonderful.co.uk.